Those of you staying here in the auditorium, we're headed over to Revelation chapter 20 and trying to wrap up while we're turning there and you're getting yourself set. Let's just run through a little bit of silly stuff. Now I'm going back a week since I wasn't here last Sunday and asking some of these things. Here we go. Uh, Name a popular food eaten at Thanksgiving. You're getting all of them. What did you say? Coconut pie. Who destroys Thanksgiving with coconut pie? Here's what they said, and this is, this is on surveys that indicate which are the top favorite foods, okay? Um, what do people do on Thanksgiving Day? Pray. Sleep? Pray? Okay. Watch football? So you've got praying and watching football. we got all covers the spectrum. Wash dishes. <laughs> Here's what they said. Travel, give thanks, take naps, watch football, visit relatives, eat a big meal. Name the most common things Americans are thankful for. Family's going to be there. Freedom's going to be there. Your wife? My wife? Your wife, okay. (laughs) Pets. This is, this is a true survey. Pets was there, their house, their car, freedom was there, friends, job or income, good health, and number one was family. Name things you look forward to between Thanksgiving and Christmas. What's that? Decorating? You look forward to decorating? Uh, <laughs> Never fails. She said, I love decorating. He's going, so so you know who carries everything out of the basement or attic, yeah. (laughs) Here's what the survey said. Buying gifts, putting up a Christmas tree, the first snow. Going to kids' Christmas programs. (laughs) Going to Christmas parties, seeing Christmas decorations, getting shopping done early, and... For hearing Christmas music. Yeah, yeah, okay. What happens at churches between Thanksgiving and Christmas? Reenactment's going to be there. Thank you. It's number one. (laughs) Here's what they said. Advent services, nativity scenes, Christmas messages, Christmas programs, singing Christmas songs, reading the Christmas story, and for us... The reenactment, yay, it's happening. So what we're doing is getting prepared for the holiday by talking about end times. So we're in Revelation chapter 20. And I I need to back up and cover something that was pointed out to me that I kind of did not explain clearly last time. So where we're at on this chart, we're waiting for this to happen. Jesus Christ to come back to the clouds and rapture us to heaven. We'll go to heaven. We'll have the Bema seat. And sometime in that period, Antichrist is going to sign a treaty with Israel. They're going to uh, have that seven-year treaty. But during that seven years, there's going to be a seven sealed judgments are going to happen in the first three and a half years. In the middle of that, Satan's cast out of heaven. Antichrist will suffer a deadly wound. He rises again. He takes over the world in, in a great um, 
control during that time, sets up the 666, false prophet helps him, and God sends seven judgments. It still doesn't get a lot of people to repent, though some do. So God sends the seven vile judgments towards the very end, which also is in association with Armageddon, the attack on Jerusalem. And in heaven, there is the announcement of the marriage of the Lamb. We're going to come back and need, I need to reflect on that just for a moment. And then Jesus Christ will come from heaven, and the next major event after that is the millennium. But we ended up talking last time that there's a gap of time of 75 days that is listed in the, in the Bible between the return of Jesus Christ and the setting up of his kingdom. We read about that in Daniel chapter 12. If you want to look there, you're fine, but I'm going to just keep on plowing through. That he mentions, blessed are those who come to the 1335th day. The second half of the tribulation lasts, according to scriptures, 1260 days. So there's a 75-day gap that we wonder what's happening in that 75 days. And we suggested these possibilities that there's going to be that judgment of the people, the nations, the sheep goat judgment that takes place when he returns of the people who are still alive. We suggest there's going to be the resurrection as stated in Revelation 20, the resurrection of those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. Then there's, as I understand, there's going to be the resurrection of the Old Testament saints who are going to be given their... um, their earthly bodies so they can go into the kingdom and enjoy the kingdom as was promised to them in all these plus many other passages. There's going to be the renewing of the earth because the earth has been devastated during that time of the tribulation. So there's renewing of the earth. There was one other thing I forgot to mention when I did this last time. There's the marriage supper of the Lamb is occurring somewhere in here. Do you remember in the weddings by the Old Testament standards or the New Testament standards in, in the ancient world when Jesus came, there was several different facets or phases of the wedding. There was the betrothal that would be arranged by the best man towards the bride on behalf of the groom. Then there was that period of one year of preparation. This was very typical of the Jewish culture. And then there would come the day of the wedding that the groom would proceed from father's house to the bride. He would take her what time of the day we didn't know, but he would come and they would parade through the streets. Jesus used that in parable form, saying you know not when the Son of Man is coming. And so that's the rapture that we would be taken home to heaven. And then somewhere in here, the vows are spoken to those who are the more intimate within the family circle. Family, closest friends, they would have the vow. And then they would have the celebration part that could be expanded for several days where it could involve several different families, people of the community, that type of thing that would happen. So I understand that that marriage could be the vows being spoken, in, and I don't know specifically because it's not as exact, but if those vows are spoken in heaven when we're prepared, when we are adorned and presented to Christ, the marriage supper is what, taking, what takes place here on earth with the Old Testament saints being the guests who are invited in and, uh, and part of that. So in that phase of it, that celebration, is it in that 75 days? Maybe that's why in Daniel, and I'm just, I don't know if this, this is accurate, but throwing it, remember Daniel has it broken up 30 days and then 45 days? Do you remember that? Maybe part of this is some of this happens on 30 days, maybe the 45, or is the millennial, or is the marriage celebration all of the millennium? I don't know. But uh, that's one thing I forgot to highlight last time that happens during that, uh, part of that probably during those 75 days. Then we have the set up. And we talked about the kingdom at length. We pointed out all these different things, that it's a thousand years. Satan's going to be 
uh, put in the uh, bottomless pit during that time, and so evil's removed, and all of these good things are happening. You have the good leaders, good atmosphere. Uh, there's going to be prosperity. There's no hunger. There's no crime. All of those things are happening here on the renewed earth. Plus, there was the celebrations, the joy, the peace, and good health. And this is where we ended up last time talking about this idea that those who are living during this time period are going to say, I'm not sick. I'm enjoying good health. Well, that makes sense for us because we have resurrection bodies. And so our bodies wouldn't get sick. It makes sense for the Old Testament saints. They have resurrection bodies and they go in. But what about the people who went in, who lived during the tribulation, who were allowed in? Did they get resurrection bodies? I don't believe so. They're going in that when Jesus came back, they were alive. They followed him. They were the sheep. They go into the kingdom. They and their offspring are going to be able to say, we don't have the same sicknesses that we read about, we hear about in our day and age. No COVID, no things of that sort. And probably no cancer, uh, no cancer like we have today. And those people will talk about living long, long ages. An infant of a a 100-year-old will be considered an infant. And so we were talking about that. Who are those children? And we met. And I already mentioned it, that there's going to be birthing taking place during the millennium. That's very clear from several texts. Who's having all these babies? And we talked about this last time. Is it the church saints? No, we're going to have resurrection bodies. Then we, like the angels, don't give in mar- don't marry or aren't given in marriage. Old Testament saints? No, they have resurrection bodies. What about the martyred? No, they have resurrection bodies. The only possibility are the sheep the ones who are believers when Jesus Christ came back and they go in with their bodies and they start birthing children, which it is predicted that both the Jewish nation and even the foreigners, the Gentiles, who go into the kingdom, they're going to experience prosperity and Israel is going to regrow itself in population. How is that happening? People are having babies during this time. And so you don't have to fear that your blessing for all eternity is you're eternally pregnant. Okay. Which, by the way, do some religions teach this? They do. They do. Um, that you're going to go and populate your own planet. For instance, Mormons teach you get your own planet and you and your spouse and you're going to have babies perpetually. Um, and so that's not what the scriptures teaches, but it does teach somebody during that thousand years they're having children. I can only assume it's going to be the people who are the sheep who went in and they're starting to have children and we ended up we saying how many children could you have if all of a sudden lifespans were hundreds of years old? How many children could you have if you had no concerns about the, the climate, uh, the culture, the finances? If the curse is removed, which it is, from the earth, probably part of the curse upon ladies, which talks about extreme pain in childbirth, that's removed. So if there's far less discomfort in having children, that would encourage a lot of children. There's no health risk. The world is a utopia. Um, people would be more helpful when it comes to raising children, uh, things like that. How many children could you have? And how many children could they have? So the world's going to have this population explosion. This helps explain something else about that whole, that whole time. There are verses that talk about people dying in the kingdom. How is that possible if we have resurrection bodies? It's those who are birthed with physical bodies or who have children during that time period. Though they have long life, there is a possibility of death for them. And so that talks about some of the people being disciplined. 
well, we're already saved, we're already glorified, so are the Old Testament saints, so are the tribulation martyred saints, so who could be disciplined? We don't lose our salvation in the kingdom. So it's those people who are birthed during that time period who may not follow the Lord. That explains why we need to have this opportunity to teach scriptures. That's going to be one of our jobs in the kingdom, is we're teaching people scriptures. Who are we teaching? Those people being birthed during that time period who are growing up, and we're going to be telling them, instructing them in God's truth. And it also helps us to understand how is there so many people at the very end who rebel, which we're going to talk about in just a few moments. That Satan, when he's let out, he's going to get as the sand of the sea people who are going to rebel. It's not us. We don't, we're not struggling with sin nature anymore. It's not the Old Testament saints who are glorified. They're, they're not struggling. It's not the tribulation saints with glorified bodies. They're not struggling with the old nature. It's people who are born during this time period who are the offspring of those who were alive when Jesus Christ came back uh, and had, they, fall, they fell into the category of the sheep who were allowed in the kingdom. So those born during the thousand-year kingdom are born with physical earthly bodies like ours they will outwardly obey Christ, but they still have a sin nature and need to get saved. The sin nature has not been eradicated. And so they need to be saved, and if not, they're going to join in in that rebellion, or they might suffer some of the judgment. And again, I remind you, during that time period, Jesus Christ is going to rule and reign as with a rod. Okay, so, so their rebellion is not going to be, their, their disobedience isn't going to be as blatant as what we see in our society today. It's going to be a very controlled environment where people need to follow Christ or they're going to be disciplined or taken away in death. And so people will follow, but will their hearts? And so what happens at the end of that time period, um, there's going to be that rebellion. But I just want to highlight this. In that kingdom, there's unified worship. This is mentioned in Scripture as well, that it talks about all the people will then be worshiping, traveling, journeying, um, doing pilgrimages from around the world to Jerusalem, where they will go and there will be a temple there in Jerusalem. It's called the Millennial Temple. And it's described in Ezekiel. And this temple is there, but it's different than the temples that we read about in the Old Testament. In this temple, there's no ark, there's no mercy seat, there's no veil in between. In this temple, they'll have some furnitures and some of the things that represent fellowship, but that curtain, those things that it represented a division from God, it's no longer there. Why? When we, the, the, the division has been basically taken away because we're living in the presence of Jesus Christ during the kingdom. And so there's a throne in the temple area, which there's no throne in the temple now, but there'll be a throne there at that time. There is also, and I want you to think this through, there's an altar, and it talks about sacrifices being prepared and made in that temple in the millennium. Why? Why are there sacrifices made? Well, okay, now some people are coming that their sacrifice would be similar to the Old Testament. They need forgiveness, okay? Could we possibly, and we, there's no definition of this um, in Scripture, could we make sacrifice? And if so, why would we do that? Let, let, me, let me throw something. Do we celebrate the death of Jesus Christ in some way? How? It's right here. It's a hint right here. Okay. Okay, so do we do something in memorial 
of what Jesus has done. Okay, so is there a possibility that in the kingdom, if we were to, if we were to make any type of a sacrifice, we would do it in commemoration of what Jesus did? Okay, that, that doesn't contradict Scripture, but uh, again, some of that, I'm not, we don't have all the details. Okay, but he, let me ask this question. Why would he bother putting a temple at all there? Okay, why would there be a temple in Jerusalem? And let me just pose several different possibilities. There's the visual demonstration that God is the center of the whole world. Does that make sense? That you look to Jerusalem. And so it's just a visual presentation. And do people like us, do visual presentations make a difference? Yes or no? Okay, so it's going to be there, and it's going to be highlighting the fact that the world, as we already unified worship and mentioned, the world is pilgrimaging to this temple. It becomes the central point of our focus um, in that sense. It provides a dwelling place, an earthly dwelling, though God doesn't need a dwelling place. There is this place where he can be approached, and so it provides the same thing as it did in the Old Testament. It is going to be the provision of his government center. <clears throat> Remember, now in the Old Testament, there was a division in their, in their religious center and their governmental center. Yes? The king wasn't the high priest, right? Okay, so there was a division. What happens in the kingdom? The high priest or the mediator is also the king. And so it's going to emphasize that, uh, emphasize God's victory. It's interesting that the temple that is described, as we put here, out from beneath this temple, like we'll see in eternity underneath the throne, but in the temple, there's this river that's providing nourishment from the temple, which is, again, a visual demonstration of all of our nourishment and our blessings come from, okay, you know, the rivers of blessings, things like that. But we also have the memorial for Jesus Christ. So what are we going to be telling and teaching and showing the people born in that time period? We're going to be saying, this is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for you. This is what Jesus did for you. And we're going to be put, showing them by picture, by, by expression. So we're going to still be talking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because Calvary is the pivotal point of all of history. Yes? Okay. And so that's going to be still a part of it. Um, part of the kingdom, well, these things you're familiar with, it's going to be a presence with God, that fellowship. No need for the curtain. It's not going to be there. And as a result, there's going to be the fullness of the Spirit that's going to be upon all peoples who are there, who are uh, worshiping, who are believers, that he talks about he'll pour out his Spirit at that time. So there's going to be this unique situation. Now, what do we do? I alluded to, we're going to be helping to teach. We're going to be involved in productivity, um, whatever. But the main duty of us as believers today is going to be this, that we're told by Jesus Christ, we're going to rule and reign with him at different levels, different responsibilities. So we're going to have management that we're going to be helping during that kingdom. Um, what facts stand out of just as we jump now into Revelation 20 a little bit more, we ought never underestimate the greatness of God's kingdom. Let, let me rephrase it this way. Sometimes, and, I, and I, it's not the kingdom, but it's the heaven concept, people say, I feel so bad about so-and-so, they're going to miss out on so much here on earth because they went to heaven. Okay. The, 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 the people who go to heaven don't miss out. Okay? Yes, they'll have different experiences. 
but they don't miss out. So we don't need to feel sorry for somebody who's in the Lord's presence that, ah, it's really a shame. They didn't get to vote. Um, it'll be far better than what we have here. Amen on that one. We will not miss out on anything. We truly do have a blessed hope. Okay, we have a truly have a blessed hope. Uh, that's when Jesus Christ comes back. Okay, so what happens at the end? We go to Revelation. Let's pick up. It's at the end of that thousand years that he's talking about, and he says in verse 7, when the thousand years are expired, gives us the clear detail. He says, Satan's going to be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners or quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. So the first thing is Satan's released. Okay? We have already noted it's at the end of the thousand years. They've expired. And what's he do? We already read he's going to go out and deceive nations. Okay, keep this in mind, okay, that what, what was Satan all about doing before, during the tribulation? Same thing, Second Thessalonians, all about deceiving people, deceiving people. What did he do in the Garden of Eden? He deceived the individual. So he's going to go out, um, what's he want to do? What's his goal? I mean, the goal is to deceive. Why? What's his goal? Okay. Okay, so it's a, he's rebelling against God, against Jesus Christ, wants people to, to turn against God and God to turn against people. What does this tell you about Satan? What's that? Right? I have two S's for Satan. Stupid, stubborn. Which one is it? Okay, right? Okay, I mean... You've been, you've been cooped up for a thousand years. You would think you would say, won't do that again. Okay. So, but not only is he stupid or stubborn or both, he hates God. He really hates God. And he comes out with a vengeance that what he does, he goes everywhere quickly, even to what they're going to call the outskirts. Gog and Magog, um, Old Testament idea that would be far north into Russia, which at that time was considered a very, very distant land. And so he's going to go to the four corners of the earth, trying to gather people to join with him. And what happens? He leads a revolt. We read about the revolt in verse 8 where it says, the number of the sand uh, of the sea, they go up, it says in verse 9, on the breath of the the earth or on the whole horizon of the earth encompass the camp of the saints about the beloved city. And so what you have is these people that it's, it's an enormous number of people who have lived in a perfect environment, some for hundreds of years, possibly. Some for dozens of decades. So they're going to revolt and they're going to follow him and surround the city. Where the, what city are we talking about? The camp of the saints the beloved city, okay, where Jesus Christ has his temple and where he's ruling. And so they're going to come against Jesus in his capital city. And it's just astounding to me. So questions, who are all these people that revolt against Jesus? People born during this time period who have never gotten saved. Okay. Other questions that come to mind, why would they rebel after all the good he's done for them? Okay, and why is even a lot, Satan even allowed? This goes back to, Jeff, you pointed out a few weeks back. You said there's a phrase back in Revelation 20, go back to verse 3. 
that there's a phrase that's at the end of verse 3. <clears throat> this is where it says, And they took Satan, cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, that, and set his seal, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, what's your next two words? He must. He must. It's a very emphatic word. He must be released. Why? Why in God's mind must Satan get another chance to deceive people? So the people have a chance to decide. Okay? It goes back to that same... Here, let's... Why would, why would they rebel despite enjoying so many benefits of the kingdom? They still have a sin nature. Okay? So keep, the, keep all these spiritual facts in mind. They still have a sin nature, which, by the way, has been restricted. It's like when you're little kids, you restrict them a whole lot better than you can when they get older. True or false? Okay, so there's restrictions on these people that they can't express all of their rebellion that they would like to do. They did not have much choice during the thousand years. During the thousand years, if you disobeyed, okay, very quickly there's some form of judgment or discipline. Remember, there's the flying scroll that Zechariah 13 talks about that's flying around, and when somebody disobeys, it hovers there. You are you are the volunteer. It hovers, and some form of discipline is coming out of this flying word of God, um, as, as pictured again in Zechariah. And so th- obedience was obliga- ob- ob- Thank you. You said it. Okay. Certain words can't get out. Okay. So they had to obey. They, they will have to obey. And so Satan's attack at the very beginning in deception... What did he say to Adam and Eve? Yeah, you know, the implication that he has is God holding back on you. you. God's holding back this one tree. And if you could eat it, you would become like God. You know, it, and this is Satan's cleverness. God gives us all of this, but you can't do this. And what is the typical human response? Okay, wet paint sign. What's your typical response? Wet paint. Got to touch it. Gotta, yeah. So keep off the grass. Got to see what happens if I go on the grass. Okay. Don't don't eat from that one tree. And he gets people to, yeah. And so you can see his cleverness, his deceiving nature is there. Is God hasn't been fair to you. God's been holding out on you. You've missed out on so much. And with the sin nature combined with his deception, it works with how many people? Great numbers, the sand of the sea, that are going to respond. So we ask this question, why? And I think the answer is very, very simple. To prove the hearts of men. To give men a real choice. Because, by the way, if these people have no choice, they're going to be able to say, I had to love you. And God says love is... It's a choice to respond. It's the same idea, that same concept. Does God force people to get saved? He gives us free will. Does he know we're going to get saved? Yes. But, and and does, he, does he organize things so that we are responsive? And we are broken down, so we want to get saved? Yes. But does he force the, uh, the belief? No. To give men a real choice so that no one accuse God of making the choice for them. Real love can't be forced. It must come from within.
So what happens when these people revolt? Here we go. It says that, um, oops, I went back a page. Um, it says that they compass the city, and what happens in the middle of verse 9? Okay. Yeah, fire comes down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Does this remind you of anything else that just, re- just happened in the text? That when God took action? Yeah, what happened there? As he's coming down, he speaks. Out of, the sword is in his mouth, right? Do you remember that? And he speaks, and what happens to the enemy armies? They're destroyed, right? And wipes them all out. And he says, even the captains and the kings and those who you know, carry the baggage, he lists all out, the servants and the slaves and everything. So God utterly defeats the rebels in their rebellion. Just like he utterly defeated at the Armageddon, the Battle of Jerusalem, when that took place. What do we learn from this singular tragic event that's predicted? I think this is so important. By the way, this affects how we look at the world right now. So follow along. Um, Fact number one, we ought not underestimate the power of our sin nature. Okay, Is our sin nature corrupt? Oh, oh wicked man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? destruction. Our sin nature, and I say this because I do, and I think many of you struggle the same way I do, I I think, is at times I underestimate my sin nature, how it can influence and I can justify things so quickly. And so it's just, it's, it's impacting to think about you know, when we are redeemed from our, from our old sin nature, what a glory that, that that whole aspect is done and gone with. Even when suppressed for a while, the sin nature is still potent and open to deception. Powerful, powerful. We ought not overestimate the idea that creating a perfect, improved environment will change people internally. Okay. Does it help to um, provide education for people. Is that a helpful tool socially? Yes or no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Will that take away the sin nature? Will that take away all corruption? No, no. Okay, so we want to go and we want to help people learn how to... um, learn how to stop attacking and stealing. I'm I'm going to tribal, tribal thought. We, we live by, as a tribal unit, whether it be out west or in different parts of the world, we live by stealing and taking from others. So want to bring Christianity to them, and this frequently happened, and part of that Christianity is to teach them to take care of themselves, not steal from others. Teach them to fish, teach them to take care of animals, teach them to um, um, farm. Going to have a tough time today. Teach them to farm and things like that so they can provide for themselves. Is that a good thing? Yes, it's a good Will that change the inner person? Can that provide peace that passes all understanding? No, no. But I, I wanted to, oops, I, I want to go back to that. Politically, socially, is this the gospel that many people are promoting today? The social gospel. If we just go in and give people more education... Crime will go away inside inner cities. That's the idea that man 
is his environment is going to make him better. And we read from the text, environment doesn't make people better. The only thing that makes people better is change of heart, Jesus Christ. And so it's a, it's a tremendous principle that affects how we view the world and our mission to the world today. And to keep that balance. Um, God is always about free choice. He will not force you to love, serve him, but he blesses you for doing that. We ought not underestimate the greatest contribution we can make to mankind. Is it, the greatest contribution, is it feeding people? Is it training people? Is it creating a better world? No. Those things are good and should we be proactive in helping those around us in those areas? Yes. But what's the greatest contribution? The gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's the truth that saves people, that changes people from inside out. And so it's an important truth. The greatest contribution is getting out the word of God. So what happens to Satan? He's done the rebellion. He's lost. What happens to him? Okay, there you have it, verse 10. Verse 10, you read that he is removed once and for all into the lake of fire and shall be tormented day and night. By the way, who's in the lake of fire just before him? Antichrist, false prophet, thank you. They're the ones that go. And what happens to the people that followed him? Look at verse 11. It just continues right with this. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, there was no, found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged every man according to their works. Death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And I want you to go back to verse 6. Verse 6 has already referred to this. Blessed is and holy is he that hath part in the what? First resurrection, which was the resurrection unto life. Blessings. The first resurrection included all the saved people. Now they weren't all resurrected at the same moment. But they're part of the first resurrection. Does that make sense? Okay. And so... He says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death has no power. What's the second death? Okay. Well, verse 14 tells us. The death and hell were cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death. So according to Daniel, who just summarized this, there is a resurrection unto blessing. There's a resurrection unto damnation. And so what happens here now is we find out about the second resurrection or the resurrection unto damnation. And what it involves is what we call the great white throne judgment that takes place. And this is going to be all who have listened to Satan's lies through the ages. They're going to have judgment day. And so with that, let's just break it down. The judge. What do we know about the judge? Hey, let me back up. Who is going to be the judge? Mm -hmm. Scripture says this. I want you to follow a couple different passages. 
The Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. He shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in righteousness. Okay. God, the judge of all, to the spirits of men, just men made perfect. Okay. We read in Daniel, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the ancient of days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, hair like the wool, his throne as the flaming fire, a fiery stream issued ten thousand times ten thousand. Stood, or, yeah, millions stood before him and judgment was set and the books were opened. Those verses indicate it is probably God the Father. Okay, And then we read this, the Father judges no man but has committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which he has sent him and has given him the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. In Acts, he has commanded us to preach unto the people and testify that, that is to say, that he which was ordained of God to be the judge, the one to judge the quick and the dead, because God has appointed in a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he has ordained. I charge you, therefore, before God and Jesus, who shall judge the quick and dead. This creates in some people's mind a contradiction that says the Bible is false and inaccurate. How do you answer that? Some verses say God judges. Some verses say Jesus judges. Who is it? Is there really a conflict? No. It's, it's the Trinity working together once again. And so no contradiction whatsoever. The Father is judging through the Son. They're both involved with judgment. Just like who saves us? The Father? The Son? The Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. <laughs> okay, all three. So there's no contradiction. But again, if you want to find contradictions in the Bible, you can, you can grab things like this, right? And so anyway, this judgment, what do you know about the throne? How's he described the throne? Let's just break it down. What's your descriptive words for the throne? Great? White? Okay, so... Let's just pick the word throne. What does a throne picture for you right away? Or say to you, if you see a throne, what's it say? Okay, okay. So you got, you got that idea that it's just this idea of authority, accountability. Yes? Okay. And 50 times in Revelation, the throne, the throne, the throne. So who does man answer to? So what, what's John getting at? You know, we are not our own. The idea, okay, so you have the word great. What's that imply? Massive? In size? Is that a possibility? Okay, is there any other possibility? Okay, yeah, in the sense that in size or significance, that it's just, whoa, that just consumes your vision. Can we put it that way? That takes all of your attention. What are you going to think about the white? Okay, You're, obviously we're going to all be, all be drawn to the idea of something, somebody who is judging us who is sinless and who we stand before, uh, we won't at this time, but whom people stand before and all their rags are as, yeah, filthy rags. Yeah, their, right, unright, their righteousness, unrighteousness as filthy rags. So it says the heaven and the earth will flee away. What's that mean? 
Well, by the way, is the earth going to be destroyed? Yes. Peter talks about the earth will be destroyed, and it appears to be at this time period. Okay? And it is going to be destroyed by global warming. Biblical global warming is when God destroys the earth with fire. Okay. And, and so here, is this the moment that the earth and the heavens fled away and they're destroyed? Could be. It also implies something very, very important that people cannot do. Hide, right? There's no place. There's, you know, creation becomes uncreated at this point. So if it's the out of its existence, but there's no place to run and to hide. None. Okay, nothing to preoccupy and say, well, you know. And what they did is kind of all gone. So it's very significant. The people who are judged, he makes it very clear in this text, he's going to be, he's going to talk about the dead. Okay, does that include any believers? This is a determination of who gets into heaven. Okay. The believers are already there. So it's, you know, he's, and he specifically says, I saw the dead. Okay. Those who have been destroyed. Those who have been separated from God. However you want to view the dead as, and I think it's both, uh, that sense of physically as well as spiritually dead. These, this is their judgment. Those not previously resurrected, those who rebelled, this would mean all the lost, okay, unsaved. They weren't a part of the first resurrection. Uh, this is a judgment of unsaved people, okay, uh, none of the saved. And it occurs, okay, um, because all the judgment for the believers was before. What happens to the believers who are in the millennium before you go into uh, eternity? We're never given any details, but we'll come there when we get to eternity. Anyway, so then that judgment's all been done for us prior to the millennium. But this, he says, all the unsaved. And he specifies the small, the great, the ones in the sea, the ones in the grave, the ones in hell. It includes how many people? All of them. There's just all of the unsaved are going to be brought back to life um, at this moment, restored physically, so that they can face this judgment. And even those who have been in hell, which is the hell we have today, that idea of that fire and brimstone, that hell today, they're going to be let out so they can stand before him for judgment day. So they get a reprieve for seconds, and then they go from the pot, the frying pan, into the fire itself. They're going to be judged. And so it's all-encompassing. There's no escape. The judgment, as the text says, um, he says they're going to be cast into the lake of fire. But there's other details that are given here, and let's cover what we can. What is God looking at? Why would he judge people's works if works can't get us into heaven? Did you catch this? Did you catch the phrase? where he says, he, he says at the end of verse 13, they were judged every man according to what? According to their works. Why does he bother judging works you know, when simply if their name is not written in the book of life, they're cast into hell? So why bother judging works? Okay. 
Several of you are, are throwing up several really good responses to it. So let's just do it. On what basis does God base his judgment? Primarily, it's whether your name's in the book of life. Okay, which is a lot. And this is, this is my understanding. You may have a different understanding, which is fine. Um, it's mentioned several times in scriptures. I understand by comparing all those scriptures together where it talks about some people's names can be erased out of the book of life. Okay, I, putting that all together, it seems to me that it contains all the names of people who could be saved initially. How many people could be saved? Okay. And then with that in mind, if they don't get saved, they reject Christ, the unpardonable sin, whatever, however that comes to a point, or Proverbs 1, where they've gone to such a point God laughs at them anymore, or they go up to their deathbed and they refuse, then their names are erased. Okay, there's no possibility of getting saved. And so by the time it's all done and we're here at this moment in history, the only ones whose names are in the book of life are the saved people okay, that are truly born again. And so if not, then you're, if your name's not in that roster, then that means you go to the lake of fire. And so he says, though, that's the main, the main book. So it's all about belief. But the books were open, and they were judged every man according to their works. Why does he have other books if it's all only and all about did we believe? Did we believe or not? There are some records that are filled with men's deeds. Why would God look at those if belief is the only one? Doesn't mean, and some pose this, they get a second chance. They've been in hell for a period of time. He pulls out and says, do you want to believe now? Okay, I don't think that's the case at all. I don't think this is what he's doing at all in that, case, in that moment. But rather, um, the question is, could good deeds impact God's judgment on them? Could it persuade, excuse me, could it persuade God to lift condemnation from them be, even though they've rejected Christ? I don't think so. I don't think that's, that's possible scripturally. But God looks at the deeds of men because of these reasons. Your deeds show whether your faith is genuine or not by their fruits, okay? It proves. What if a man says, I have this, I do, you know. If you have not worked, your faith is dead, okay? Number two, the deeds, the works that he's pointing out, they justify the guilty verdict to those who would arrogantly say to God Almighty, well, look at all the good I've done. Well, their deeds would show Maybe they weren't as good as what they thought. Okay? Um, and so you have that idea, remember, that says if you break one commandment, you're, you're a commandment breaker. You're guilty of all. You know, that, that concept that goes through scriptures. The Bible indicates there are different degrees of damnation and punishment. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. That he talks about there is greater damnation for those who have heard the truth and reject it than those who have never heard the truth. Okay. Um, and so we have that portrayed in Scripture on several different passages that talk about that idea that where Jesus did his works, those people are going to have a greater accountability than people that never saw the works of Jesus Christ. And so you have that mentioned in several different passages of Scripture. Now my question for you is, what works is God recording? Do you remember any of them that are given in Scripture? That he would bring up if somebody is going to be arrogant and to say, I don't deserve to go to hell. I've been a good person. 
And by the way, Matthew 7 says people will do this. Many shall say to me, right? So there's going to be an argument that takes place by some people. So here's, just let me run through this real quickly. Just give you what people think or feel. Can you imagine being judged by your thoughts? Okay, okay, there's a couple of us here that go, I don't want anybody to know some of the things I think, right? And sometimes I'm too stupid, I say what I think. The Bible says that people are judged by what they said. Can you imagine giving account for the words you said? I am so glad they're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay. But the Bible indicates that. The Bible indicates what people have done. Okay? How they've treated other people, how they've, how they've responded. If they've obeyed, disobeyed, I'm so glad it's under the blood. You know, just grace. So the result of the judgment is whosoever is not found written cast in the lake of fire. But it's going to be, I think, what you, you were one or two that said, this is going to uh, justify the judgment. And they end up in the lake of fire, which is... And think about this. Let me wrap up with this. At this judgment, some might try to, but they're not going to win the debate. There's no jury of your peers that might feel sympathetic. There's no um, plea bargaining. There's no second chance. This is damnation. This is potent stuff. This is why we preach the gospel, so people don't end up here. Okay, let's get ready to do that. You pray for the morning service that God would use it.